If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 8. So more of a traditional concept of Palm Sunday. What was Palm Sunday really representative of? Jesus coming, his prophetic entrance into the city, that they would sing his praises, Hosanna, as he comes and announces his Messiahship. He is coming as that soon and conquering king. Yet the story takes a huge deviation. And I don't want to talk too in depth about the deviation because we'll get to that next weekend. But I want to talk maybe about the heart of the people who were in the crowd, maybe a little bit about what it meant to be someone waving the flag and the anticipation that they must have felt, but also maybe the hard stance they had. They didn't even understand where they were coming from. Hebrews chapter 6, we'll start there, but we're going to get to 8 of verse uh, 6 through 8 later on. But Hebrews chapter 6 in verse 1, therefore leaving elementary teachings about Christ let us press on to maturity, laying again a, not laying again a foundation for the repentance of dead works or of faith towards God. Here the writer of Hebrews is going back to uh, a new understanding of what it would be to be a developed and mature Christian. That we as Christian people, we don't develop and mature overnight, but that when we give our life over to Jesus, that over time we take on new principled understandings. The writer of Hebrews was saying, I don't want you to remain in an elementary status. Most of, us, most of us have gone through school. We understand what elementary school is. It's the basics. Now, new math might not be the basics for you, depending on how and what area, era you grew up in. It's not exactly the same thing I was taught, but it is the basics, right? Reading, writing, arithmetic. The writer of Hebrews equates the elementary teachings of Christ, this concept of let not laying again a foundation for the repentance of dead works or faith towards God, that we should come to a place where we just have automatic faith in God. He is the God of the universe. He does know what he's doing. His ways are above mine. He is sovereign and in control, yet he still gives me the opportunity to make choice. We should get away from some of these elementary teachings. The foundation of the idea of repentance from dead works, we should understand that we don't have to worry about the dead works that we've done over and over and over. Dead works are simply this, that we try to manifest something in our own life through our own works that Jesus says, I've already taken care of. Those works are dead. They have no purpose. They serve no purpose whatsoever because Christ has already made the way. He's already fulfilled that promise. We have to learn how to live in it. Psalms chapter 78 and verse 33, if you have, or 37, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. We have an understanding of those people who were singing Hosanna, who were laying leaves down in front of Jesus to make a path to cut his way towards the temple. We have an understanding of what it was like for them to crowd the streets and sing of his praises. We have an understanding because Psalms gives us an idea. Chapter 78 and verse 37, <coughs> excuse me, their heart was not steadfast towards him, nor were they faithful in his covenant. Listen, they, they quickly, this crowd quickly morphed from saying, this is our guy, this is the king, this is the one we anticipated, to string him up, kill him. We want him. Give us Barabbas, release the murderer, keep Jesus, crucify him. How does it change so quickly in a week's time? How does their anticipation change so quickly in the face of tension? Their hearts weren't steadfast towards him. They weren't faithful to the covenant. Now, we'll understand that here in a second. 
But the problem relating to God on their own terms insisted that they base it all on this old concept of covenant. That there was a contract, and if we fulfilled it just right, that God would do magically exactly what he said he would do. That's not at all what we understand through the life of Christ. We have a tendency to want to relate to God in our present-day understanding. So right now, whatever you're feeling based on this COVID-19 issue, we have a tendency to want to relate to Jesus based on that level. Well, COVID-19 is going to kill us all. No, it's not. Not you, blood-bought under the banner of Christ. Why would you assume that you would succumb to that to any degree? Well, if I do, I can't get better because they don't have the right medication. They don't have anything to treat it with. Slow down for a second. You serve a God that heals. And he heals even at the point of our greatest need. Why do we revert to understanding God based on our present concept of who he is? Because sometimes that's as far as our mind can stretch. What seems to resemble to us in our current situation is the idea that our hearts have failed us. We want to believe God with everything we have. We want to believe him with gusto. We want to get out there and have faith and stretch ourselves to be one of these may, great, mighty men or women of faith. Yet at the moment of tension, many of us have a heart problem and it fails us. In fact, the Bible even says in the last days that their hearts will fail them for what they see and hear. That what we hear and experience, our hearts will fail. I don't mean you're going to have massive heart attacks. I mean that people are just going to, oh, they're not going to get it. They're going to revert back to what they know. They're going to revert back to the old patterns of the past. They're going to revert back to wondering and hoping and wishing that if they do all the religious things right, that finally God will rescue them. And I'm here to tell you today, when they sang Hosanna, when they were laying down those branches in front of his donkey, when he was riding in on that colt, what they were alluding to was the idea that he had already won the victory, that he was coming as a conquering king, that there was no battle that needed to be won again. Though he was going to walk through the pain of the cross, it was a significant sign that he had already won the victory. When are we going to remember the victory that Christ has already won for us? The heart, the heart, our heart, our, our emotional core is the facility of understanding. It's where we understand all of who God is. We don't understand God mentally. We don't understand God just through facts and figures and arguments for argument's sake, we understand him in our, call, in our core and in our heart. Excuse me. Sorry, that's not anything going on. I just have seasonal allergies, so don't get anyone out of whack there. Oh my gosh, he coughed and he coughed into his hand and I'll wash it. Don't worry. People are more than six foot away from me, so don't worry about it. But there are three points of exchange that I want to talk about. When we talk about this idea of Jesus coming as this conquering king, there are three points of exchange that are very important. The first one is God has become flesh. Hebrews chapter 16, again, as we were talking about uh, thir uh, verse 13 through 18, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, I'm sorry, I said Hebrews, I meant Matthew. Go ahead and turn that around. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 and 18. We'll, we'll get to Hebrews later on. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? And they replied, some say you're John the Baptist, the great forerunner of Jesus. Others say you're Elijah, which would have been a weird thing to say. He's John the Baptist. He and John the Baptist were alive at the same time. John literally baptized Jesus. So that would have been a weird ghostly phenomena. Others say that he's Elijah. He's one of those famed prophets. Others say you're Jeremiah, another famed prophet. 
And Jesus answer, or looks at them and says, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter, the one who's one of the most vocal of the group, the one who puts his foot in his mouth more than any other, speaks up very quickly and says, you're Christ, you're the son of the living God. At this moment, he didn't put his foot in his mouth, but he exclaimed a revelation that was very, very true. And Jesus said, or he replied, blessed are you, Sinus, son of Jonah. For this is not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you, Peter, that on this rock, this revelation of who Jesus is, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. Why is the church so important? Why is the church so important? Because Jesus signifies here that he will build his church on the revelation, a revelation that Jesus himself is the embodiment of the Son of God, manifest in human form, set on earth for a purpose to bridge the gap between man and God. That the whole of a church entity, the whole of a church building and organization references the idea that Jesus is who he says he is. He is the Messiah. And on that, he will build his church. And from the building of his church, the very gates of hell will not stand against. Listen, church, you might be displaced right now. You might feel out of sorts and out of pocket. That's okay. God says you still win when you're part of the family. That even hell itself can't stand against the church. Please understand that we are not passive passengers on a ride to heaven someday. We are warriors. We are warriors. We are winning a battle. We are moving and taking ground. And someday, very, very soon, I believe we will find ourselves at the mouth of hell itself in front of her gates, declaring that we will take the victory. Why? Because greater is he that is in us than he that is in this world. We already have a God who's proven through this revelation that was given to Peter that we are serving a living God, breathing flesh and blood who came to planet earth to set the world to right so that his church could win the ultimate victory. Why would you ever want to run from the church? Why would you ever want to disbar yourself from the church? Why would you ever want to not be a part of God's church? It's the only institution spoken of from Jesus who the gates of hell itself cannot stand against. Doesn't mean we're filled with perfect people. It doesn't mean we always get it right. It doesn't mean that in our history we haven't done some goofed up stupid things. What it does mean is in the midst of human tragedy, God's church will remain faithful. God's church will remain secure. And the gates of hell and even this stupid disease called COVID-19 will not stand against it. The revelation of who Jesus is is the foundation on which the whole of the church is built and the gates of hell cannot, will not, ever overcome you. Your personal revelation of who Jesus is to you will determine the outcome of your life. Whoever Jesus is to you will determine the outcome of your life. If you believe he's healer, you'll be healed. If you believe he brings the victory, you'll have the victory. If you believe he supplies all of your needs even before you have to ask for one of them, you will have everything you need in this life. If you believe he is the savior and that when this life is over, you can count heaven as your home, you will experience heaven when this life is over. However you see Jesus is what you'll experience from heaven. The kingdom of heaven has become flesh and it's dwelt among us. 
the totality of the kingdom of heaven. Everything that we'll experience in heaven is wrapped up in the person of Jesus, and he literally comes to be with us, to connect with us, to be a part of our lives, to walk through this with us, each and every one of us, to walk through uncertainty, to walk through trials, to walk through pain, to walk through victory, to walk through mountaintops. He comes to walk through the total experience of humanity with us. But how do we view him as a distant God? Do we view Jesus as someone who's off in the future someday that we'll meet in the sweet by and by when we finally cross those pearly gates that St. Peter's guarding? Or is he someone that we can commune with daily? Is he someone in real flesh and blood that we can connect with daily? We must become established in this new covenant exchange that Heaven came to earth, wrapped itself in human flesh, and presented himself as Jesus the Christ. We've got to learn to establish the idea of a new covenant being enacted. A covenant is a contract. And when you make a contract with someone, you don't relate to them however you choose. You relate to them based on the articles of the contract or the covenant. Anyone who's ever had a business dealing understands this. You relate to a business partner or someone you're in a contract with based on the parameters of the contract. So for instance, I worked at one point when we started this church with a car dealership down the road here. There were a lot of things I didn't get to do because it wasn't in my contract. I didn't get to see the books. Excuse me. I didn't get to see what the car dealership took in every day. It wasn't part of my contract. I didn't get to get under a car and turn a wrench and change someone's oil. It wasn't part of my contract. There was a limited window of what I was contracted to do. That's all I could do. That's the only place I could relate to the company. That's the only voice that I had. In our lives, we have a contract with the Heavenly Father who says, I've come to bring Jesus into your stead, that he will be in your place, and that he will take on the brunt of sin. He will take on the brunt of sickness. He will take on the brunt of disease, that you don't have to live in that space any longer. I've come to win the victory through my son because he is now wrapped in flesh and blood. He can take on the whole mess that this world found itself in. Yet some of us still relate to Jesus as if he's this off and far away deity. Some of us still relate to Jesus as if he's a God who doesn't draw near and doesn't come close. Some of us still relate to Jesus as if we have to do 15 Hail Marys and our fathers just to get into his presence. Some of us relate to Jesus as if there's a man in a box who's the only person that can free us from our sin. Listen, even the Pope said recently, you can't go to a priest because of COVID-19. Go take your sins to Jesus himself. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that he woke up to the... Anyway, I don't want to get too far on that one because I don't want to offend anybody. If you're Catholic, Catholic, there's nothing wrong with that. But understand, you don't have to go through any man to get to Jesus. You can go right to Jesus for yourself. Point number two that we get in this exchange a more fully developed covenant. Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 6, where we wanted to get to, says, but now he, Jesus, obtained a more fully developed ministry. By as much, he also is the mediator of a more fully developed covenant or contract, which he has enacted or which has been enacted on a more fully developed promise. 
Your translation might say better for the idea of fully developed. It's not better in that it does away with the old. It's more fully developed in that Jesus exposes the negativity of the old contract, builds on it, and gives us a new high point to shoot for. Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 6 says there's a more fully developed ministry that we were servants of God even in our old past dead life. We were doing our best to find a way to enact, to connect, to commune with God. But he says this new ministry is so effortless, it's so easy. If you come by way of Jesus, it is so much more fully developed. He comes as a mediator. There used to be a mediator. It was the blood of animals. It was the blood of sacrifices. They wouldn't anger this... You can walk right into the throne. We go to God with our request. Because Jesus himself walks in front of us. He masks us in his presence. And so when our, when our praises, when our needs, when our wants, when our desires, when our prayers are focused towards God's throne, they, they have to come filtered through the person of Christ. It's a beautiful exchange, a more fully developed mediator. It's a covenant which has been enacted on a more fully developed promise. The promise before was if you keep to the rules, I won't forget you. If you keep to the rules, I'll follow what I said I would do. If you'll keep... To the rules, you and I can have a relationship. But in this more fully developed and enacted covenant, Jesus says, I've already paid the price for all the rules. I've kept every single one of them as that perfect Jew, as that perfect Jewish nation, as that perfect Hebrew, Hebrew man. And I've come to say, listen, I've made a way for you to enact the promises of God in your life, literally with no work of our own. It's frustrating to me to watch people continue to try to work out their salvation. We do have a Bible verse for that, don't we, Pastor? We work out our salvation through fear and trembling. Sure we do. We work it out in this context. We try to relate to God the best that we can. And through awe and through wonder and through majesty, we get to set ourselves in front of the throne of God. But that doesn't mean that we take it upon ourselves to fix ourselves. That doesn't mean that we take it upon ourselves to try to manipulate and stir up something that is not genuine, that's something other than who we are, and present it at the throne of God and say, God, look at this, haven't I done a good job? Listen, I love my kids, but sometimes they get a little, they get a little competitive, and little Noble is very competitive. And the other day, he pulled out a picture, and he showed it to him, and he said, Daddy, look, look at what I did. And I looked at it, it as a beautiful picture that he had colored, or so he said, I looked over the picture and he stayed in the lines a little more than usual. I looked at the picture and he'd used the colors a little more appropriately than usual. And his brother came in and said, what are you doing with my picture? You know, some of us do that with God. We, we put all of this effort, 
We put all of this masquerading in front of him and we say, look, look, haven't I done a good job? And he says, that's not authentically you. He says, I want the color, I want the picture that you painted where you scribbled outside the lines. I want the picture that you painted that is much less than perfect. I want the picture that you painted that didn't use the color palette correctly. I want the picture that you painted with your hands because it's you. And all he really wants is you and I. We have to understand that after we enact this more fully developed covenant, after we have this moment of exchange, God plants his flag of victory. Jesus comes, flesh and blood. He wins the battle against all of the powers and principalities of hell itself. He wins the battle on the cross. Then he comes and gives us an exchange, a, a better, a more perfect covenant, enacted on a more perfect promise enacted through a more perfect mediator. At that moment, he solidifies our victory by planting his flag in the ground. We have won the battle. Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 7 and 8 goes on. Hold on just a second. What's going on there? For if the first covenant had been fulfilled there would have been no occasion sought for a second. For the first, for the, for the finding fault uh, with, with them, uh, he says, behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. We have this idea that if the first covenant had worked if it had been perfect, if you and I could have followed suit in our religious practices perfectly to a T, there would be no, no need for Jesus to come. And I still stand by that today. If any man can fulfill the first of the covenants, if you can fulfill it exactly as it's lined out in Scripture, I don't doubt your salvation for a second. But the moment you mess up, you need Jesus. The moment you can't fulfill that covenant, and if you don't even know what I'm talking about, guess what? You need Jesus. Maybe you're thinking, covenant rules, what? Yeah, there used to be a bunch of them. In fact, there's 600 plus of them. If you can't fulfill every single one of them every single day, you need Jesus. And in fact, he says that we're not here to find fault with them, but we're declaring that there are days ahead where he will effect a new covenant for these houses, where he will effect a new covenant for our lives. The fault in the covenant was not the failure itself. The fault in the covenant was the failure with us. That whatever contract was laid out between God and humanity before Jesus came, whatever contract that was written, you and I could never have lived up to it even if we wanted to. But we know we needed a way back to God. We know we needed a way back to the throne room and that happened through Jesus. Romans chapter 8 and verse 3, don't, don't turn there. I'll get, just give you the briefing part of it. It says the reason the law or the Torah or the previous covenant didn't work was because of the will of men was weak. Listen, you and I are not strong enough to put up a fight even against COVID-19. Let's be honest. Some of you, what you're feeling right now, just get off my notes for a second in, in, a, in an inspired moment here. Some of you, what you're feeling right now, what you're feeling, the desperation, the heaviness, the, the blanket weight that kind of falls on you, you don't know how to place it. It's grief. It's real. It's, it's real. It's a real sense of grief. It's grief that those numbers that we see are actual people. It's grief that you're not able to do what you 
anticipate to do with your life. Not the personal liberty thing. I mean, life is on hold and you're not sure if it's ever going to get back to normal. It's grief and not being able to connect with the loved ones in your life that you so desperately want to see. It's grief and knowing that it feels like the enemy's winning, that he's come to steal, kill, and destroy, and he started stealing and killing and destroying. Through what we're reading today and through what we know to be true of the gospel, he doesn't win this battle. He definitely doesn't win the war. If we'll be honest with ourselves, we know there's a great day of victory coming. In fact, I believe that this Easter will mark a point in time where we'll see a great victory. Easter is a resurrection, not just a resurrection of Jesus, but a resurrection for you and I, for a resurrection for anything that's dead and lost in your life to be revived. Easter is a point in contact. It always has been and always will be on the calendar. A moment we can, we can cap off with a date to say resurrection power has real authority in my life, an authority over anything that was dead. This morning, if you're feeling that real sense of grief, understand you don't have to live in it. You can let it go. You can put it to the cross. You can say, Jesus, I get it. I feel the sense of heaviness, the weightiness of grief, but I know you've come to win the victory. As imperfect people try to relate to a perfect God, many times there's just fault finding. He says that he'll enact a more perfect and a better covenant. And in our lives, we do our best to live up to it and we find ourselves failing and we wonder where the shortcoming is. And because we're not smart enough to just say, God, I know the problem's with me, we continue on trying to affect change with our own will, our own desire, our own action. Let me help you. If you're trying to pray your way out of it, stop it. I'm all for prayer. Stop. If you're trying to give your way out of it, stop. Don't give another dime. But didn't you just ask for an offering? Yeah, I did. If you're trying to worship your way out of it and it's just a religious activity, stop it. Anything you're doing just for the sake of a religious activity to try to win the battle on your own merit, stop doing it today. Let it go for a while. That doesn't sound very pastoral. It's not. It's not. Most pastors would cringe at the idea. You just told people to stop worshiping, to stop praying, and to stop giving. Yep, 100%. If the only reason you're doing it is because you're trying to affect a change on your own power, you can't do it. You never could, and you are never expected to. We need to come back to a place where all of these things happen in our life because we have laid down our selfish will and desire. We have laid down our want to try to fix it on our own, and we've said, Jesus, have your way. John chapter 1 and verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. That there was an ancient lawgiver, and he gave the law, and he said, if you keep it, you can have heaven as your home. But Jesus came not to dispense of the law, but to re-up the promise and said, I've kept every single one of them. And because I have, I've opened a way for grace and truth to be realized. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13. You can skip down a little bit. A new, not formed exactly like this before, covenant based on the text, a new, not ever before assumed covenant. He made the first obsolete. But whatever is being obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Listen, he's forming something new. He's enacting a new covenant. This is why Palm Sunday is so important. In one march through a city, 
He dispenses with the entirety of the old covenant. He says, I've come to abolish, not to abolish, to do away with, but to fulfill it. I've come to enact something new. I've come to make the first one obsolete, and I've come to bring you something that is so much better than what you understand. I don't have my phone on me, and I wish I did. I'd show you what I mean by obsolete. I have a new iPhone that came out in September. Hallelujah, I love them. Great, great tool. I love iPhone season. When the new one comes out, it's almost like you know deer hunting season for some guys. I just love standing in line waiting for my iPhone. Well, guess what? In September, it's going to be obsolete. Everything in that phone that was bright and shiny and new and awesome and cool will be a handoff for the next one. Listen, this is what Jesus does. He comes and he shows us something. And he says, look at this. This is awesome. Look at how we can relate. And God formed and patterned a covenant. And Jesus came in on the backside and said, that was cool, but wait till you see the new model. That was awesome. And man, you really strived and tried to use it for all that it was worth. But wait till you see the new model. We've got to come to a place in an understanding that when they were waving those branches in front of him, when they were laying them on the ground so they could walk that cult into the city, what he was saying in one prophetic instance was the new model has arrived. We need to learn to live in that new expression of who he is. Point number three, there's a great exchange that comes as we continue on into maturity. Hebrews chapter six and verse one Therefore, laying aside the elementary teachings of Christ. It's an elementary thing to think that Christ is just about our repentance from dead works and our faith towards God. There's so much more in it. You have to believe that God is, that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. You have to believe that Jesus came to dispel even the works or the ideas of dead works. But once you get past that, you learn to live in a full-fledged victory of who Christ is. Once you get past that, You learn to live in the new, the new model, the sports car that you've been looking for, the new iPhone that you had your eye on. You get to look and live in that space of something that's never been crafted or created before. You get to do away with the old and come into the new. The first of the doctrines of Christ was the idea of repentance of dead works. This is not for believers to map out for the rest of their life this idea that I'll finally get to a place where he'll accept me. I'll finally get to a place where I've done everything I can and finally Jesus says, yes, you're worthy. It doesn't work that way. Repentance from dead works is to say, I tried and tried and tried and tried and tried. I couldn't do it. You know, the Bible actually says that in our striving, it's like a leopard trying to change its spots. We can't do that on our own. You and I can't change who we are on our own, but the moment we give it over to Jesus, it disappears. We become lost in his presence. When you have an addictive personality or tendency, there's a struggle, a striving that says, I've got to fix this on my own. If I go through all the steps, if I do all the programs, I'll finally get there. The reality is many people fail in those endeavors because they're trying to change their spots on their own. Give it over to Jesus and watch him change the core of who you are. There are folks who have broken and dead relationships and you're trying to revive them through all this work, through all this effort. Jesus says, give them to me and watch the miracle that happens. Some of you have lost financially, devastated, and you're trying to figure out, God, how do I bring back what was lost? He says, if you'll give it to me, if you'll give the exchange, the repentance from dead works, if you'll give it to me, I'll fix it. 
Will we come to a place where we've just said, God, I'm going to let go and let you. I'm going to let go and let you. I'm going to be one of those who drops that tree branch on the ground. I'm going to be one of those who waves that palm branch, shouts Hosanna, because what's coming is a prophetic idea that all things are made new. My take home for today is very simple. Are you living in dead works or trying to affect change with your own efforts? Let me help you out. The band's going to come up and we're going to sing one more song as we exit service and I'll be done here in just a minute. But let me help you out for a second. You can struggle, you can try, you can fight for years and years and years and years and nothing happens. Some of you have been in this cycle where you fought and you fought and you fought and you fought and you don't see any change coming. Today's the day where you let it all go. Today's the day where you bring it before the cross. Today's the day where you say, Jesus, I've had enough struggling and trying. I'm going to try it your way. It doesn't mean there won't be work involved. It doesn't mean that you won't be asked of and there won't be a great ask in your life, something that's difficult and hard to work through. But it does mean that you let it go and you let him bring the change. That does mean that you let it go and you let Jesus bring the change to your life. It does mean that you let it go and you say, Jesus, have your way in me. Quit trying to fix it on your own. Quit trying to fix it on your own power. Quit trying to fix it with your own efforts. Let it go.